you can open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 1 as we continue our series, Joy to the World. Tell him that he can either pay the fine or he can come with me. So those were the words that my trans faith, uh, translator faithfully conveyed back to me. I had just told the police officer, I'm not paying that fine. This is ridiculous. I didn't know that this was a law here. How am I supposed to know I'm not allowed to do that? It's not fair. Now, while I was arguing my case, the translator's face looked a little strained, but I guess he faithfully conveyed the message. It turns out at this time that I was living under an illusion. You see, up to this point in my life, I believed that if something wasn't fair, if it didn't feel right, that I could protest, defend my rights, argue my case. But after the uh, police officer said, unless you pay the money, you're coming with me, all of my ill-conceived notions went out the window right then and there. I'm thinking to myself, spend a night in a Slovak jail or hand this guy $50. Well, I hand him the $50 with a smile on my face. Now you're wondering, what's the crime? What did I do? I fell asleep on a train car with my feet propped up on the seat and my shoes were on. I mean, horrendous, right? Big no-no in Slovakia. And I take that money, I give him $50. It's worth $50, I guess, over there, or jail. He doesn't hand me a ticket. He just walks about, goes on his merry way. Now, if you've done any international travel in your life, you, you realize very quickly that you are not in Kansas anymore when you're in a place that your citizenship does not reside. And one of the more striking places where you come to this realization is actually, I know this sounds a little crude, but it's bathroom experiences, okay? The first time I had culture shock around a bathroom was I was going into the bathroom and there was a guy, a guard stationed outside of the bathroom who I had to pay to walk in and use the bathroom. Now, I thought that that was an inalienable right. I thought that was in the Bill of Rights. You can use a bathroom for free anywhere. And then you get into the bathroom and there's no toilet paper because you were supposed to bring your own. Here's an even crazier one. I am traveling to India the first time. I walk into the bathroom and there's supposed to be what we call an English toilet and there is instead a hole in the ground. Hmm. I walk out have a conversation with my professor of theology who is from India originally. And I'm like, Dr. Matthews, how do you do number in there? And he just starts laughing at me. You know, it's funny, when you travel around the world, things are very different. I, I've also come to the realization that when you travel, you start appreciating what you do have. Uh, my American citizenship. Uh, I've been to places around the world where some of the rights that I've taken for granted in this country, in that country, are not rights. Uh, the right to vote, uh, the right to be safe as you're walking around the street and, and, and be free from harm. 
um, the right to have, uh, well, things we just take for granted, like good infrastructure and access to services and goods, uh, a lack of corruption. Now, we might get into a little debate and say, well, there's probably some corruption in this country, but let me just say this. You go to certain parts of the world and corruption is everywhere. There's a little desk bureaucrat and he wants a bribe and then you you go up to a police officer and they want a bribe. And there is even these random guys as you're walking through the airport that are stationed for some reason as security guards at non-checkpoints and they're holding out their hand and saying, give me two. You see, you don't want to take your citizenship for granted. And I think that that helps us to get into the mindset of the text this morning. Uh, The big idea that Paul is going to express to us in this text is, listen, you can face the hardships of this world, even so far as persecution, because, get this, your citizenship is in heaven. Now get, I've been in places that are uncomfortable, not fun, uh, weird foods, weird bathroom experiences, and I've endured those situations because I know that there is an airplane that can take me home again, right? So with that in mind, let's read the text. This is Philippians chapter 1, and we're looking at verses 27 through 30. Above all, You must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst of it. So as we open up this passage in verse 27, If you're reading from the English Standard Translation, it says to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of, which I want to suggest actually under-translates the Greek. As you look at this New Living Translation, it better captures the essence of the Greek. Live as a citizen of heaven. You see, the Greek word that Paul uses in this passage talks about the idea of a person taking an active part in the affairs of the city or of the empire. So he's got citizenship on mind. And it's a great analogy. First, highly effective for this Philippian culture. These people took their civic mindset to the extreme levels. They were proud citizens of Rome. You have to understand that even though this church is physically located in Macedonia, miles and miles away from Rome, they were considered a Roman city, a Roman outpost. And so these people, even though they're not physically located in Rome, they enjoy all the rights, the privileges, the protection, the status of being a Roman citizen. 
Now, that's a very helpful analogy when you think about your experience as a Christian. Because even though you are not physically located in heaven right now, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you experience or you enjoy all the rights, the benefits, the privileges, the status of being a citizen of heaven. So here's what Paul's saying to us as we move into the flow of thought. This is my translation. Therefore, since you are a citizen of heaven, live like a citizen of heaven while you are journeying in this earth. You know, there has just been a reputation that has been established when you're traveling internationally that sometimes Americans don't travel so well. Okay, they've developed a reputation of being kind of rude, upfront, large and in charge. And they are even called, you may have heard this before, ugly Americans. Have you heard that before? Okay, well, my dad had an ugly American experience once. He was um, traveling in Toronto, Canada, and he was going up to a money exchange. And the gentleman just in front of him who is exchanging his money has a thick southern draw. And as he's receiving his money, he says, boy, what is this? I give you good American greenbacks and you give me this play money? Now, dad is right behind the guy and he's appalled. So as he approaches the attendant, he fakes a Scottish accent. <laughs> now, you'll have to ask him if that part of the story is true. You are a citizen of heaven, so make Jesus look good. Here's the reality, my fellow citizens. Non-citizens are watching you. They're watching you. And your calling in this world is to add credibility to heaven's message, the gospel. We don't want to kind of create a, an image of ourselves in the mind of the people that we live amongst that we're ugly Christians. If you're a follower of Christ, we come to the realization that we're different. It's true. Uh, we have staked out our lives on the lordship of Jesus Christ. We feel called to follow him with our lives. We believe that all of our eternity and hope and all of that rests in Jesus Christ. But different doesn't need to be odd or eccentric or even worse, repulsive. Different is supposed to be appealing attractive. Well, how does a Christian be different yet attractive? Now, she's probably going to kill me for telling you this story, but in our small group, uh, one of our members, Beverly Peterson, told the story about Nikki Hatch. She said that she had gone to Nikki's place of work, and as she was checking out with her goods with the cashier, she just says to her, hey, I hear that Nikki Hatch works here. Do you know her? And the cashier just stops everything, and she's like, oh, I just love Nikki Hatch. She's a wonderful person. And then another employee who happens to just overhear the conversation, she chides in, I love Nikki Hatch. That's a great example of being different yet attractive, right? She, in her place of work, is making Jesus look good. And that's our call as a citizen of heaven. 
So what makes Christians look attractive? Well, Paul is going to really give us two points about this attractive citizenship. The first one he's going to say is that attractive citizens stand together. Let me read that verse to you again, verse 28. He says, Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. If we've been going through this series, we've been talking about the reality that joy, happiness, emotional health, those are things that can be appropriated in your life as a believer in Jesus Christ. And as we keep going through this, we're also going to see that much of that is tethered to a very important principle. You were made for people. You were made for people. I cannot live my life alone as an island. I am going to experience a weak and flimsy faith if my experience with community, with living with others, is weak and flimsy as well. I have uh, been looking all over the place in scriptures around this, and this theology is everywhere in the scriptures. In fact, one of the most powerful examples of it is found in Genesis chapter 2. Now, if you remember the story of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, we have the macro lens view of God creating everything in seven days. And then you get into Genesis chapter 2, and it's the more narrow lens of God creating Adam from the dust of the ground. You remember the story, right? God has placed Adam in the garden. Adam's living in paradise. He experiences blessed relationship with the God of the universe. And then God looks at Adam's existence and he says what? It's not good that man should be alone. Now remember, in Genesis chapter 1, everything's good. Everything God's making, everything God's doing. It's hard to conceive that something could not be good. Adam's in paradise. He has the best relationship possible, his relationship with God. And yet, God looks at his existence and he says, that's not enough. He needs another of his own kind. He needs relationship. Now, why would God feel this way? Well, because God exists in Trinitarian relationship. He enjoys relationship with his own kind, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Relationship is at the very heart of who God is, which is why it's so important in this time, in this occasion, to address the culture of loneliness that we're living in. You know, PBS, for example, put out an article and was talking about this loneliness. It says that loneliness increases the risk of premature death by nearly 30%, with the report revealing that those with poor social relationships also have a greater risk of, get this, stroke and heart attack. Isolation elevates a person's likelihood for experiencing depression, anxiety, and dementia. All of these things we've been talking about, right, that people are dealing with in droves in this culture. And then here's the most striking point they make. 
Widespread loneliness in the U.S. poses health risks as deadly as smoking up to 15 cigarettes daily. Are you kidding me? Now, the reason I think Christians need to hear this message about joy is because some of us are swimming in the stream of loneliness and separation that our culture is swimming in. We're not seeing the reality that I need people, that I experience greater levels of personal well-being when I have invested my life in other people. We need to come to the realization that we have people and we need to understand who our people are. You know, Paul makes a very important point when it comes to community in this verse. He says that these Christians have a reason to be together because they're standing together and fighting for the faith, the gospel message together. Uh, One writer, Todd Bollinger, says this, that Christian community is not merely about connection, care, and belonging, even though those are very important pieces of it, highly prized, highly valuable. So you have to ask the question, why do we gather? Why does God want you as a believer to grow with other people? What is the purpose in this? Gathering just for the sake of gathering? Growing just for the sake of growing? No. Christians grow and gather so that we can represent heaven well. So that we can be on mission together. So the principle is this, you were made for people, but even more than that, you were made to be on mission with people. If you really want to experience the joy of community and the connection of community that scripture is telling us about, you have to understand that we have a deep purpose that we are pursuing together. And this is true, right? When people forge relationships tethered to purpose, they experience greater levels of well-being. I I love this story of Meriwether Lewis and of uh, William Clark for that very reason. When you think of those two guys, you never think of them as a separate entity, right? You always say what? Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark. Why? Well, A big reason for that is the effectiveness of their trip was really because a result of the friendship that they had forged together. Um, In this day and age, that wasn't very common. There was a kind of a chain, a hierarchical command. There's a king, he tells you what to do, you go do what the king does. But Lewis made a very decisive decision that he was going to co-lead this trip with Clark. And listen to what Clark said to Lewis in a letter. This is from July 24th, 1803. He said, this is an undertaking freighted with difficulties, but my friend, I do assure you that no man lives with whom I would prefer to undertake such a trip as yourself. My friend, I join you with my hand and heart. You were made to join in the great work of the gospel with hand and heart with the people of God in your local church. That's what makes the Christian community so attractive. But let's look at another point of attraction. Uh, This is verses 28 to 30 now. 
Paul says again, don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst of it. Now, Paul is writing to this church that he loves. It is like a love letter, isn't it? I love you guys. I miss you guys. I want to be with you guys. But he's writing this love letter to a church that he knows is under assault. Uh, One commentator suggests that perhaps it's this hyper-politically-minded, hyper-citizen-minded Philippian experience that caused the persecution. You see, Christians were declaring Jesus is Lord, but the people in Philippi would declare Nero, the emperor of Rome, is Lord. And they escalated this to an emperor worship. So you have public gatherings, um, kind of like where we salute the flag at a public gathering. The people come to the public gathering and they're told, bow to the statue of Nero, sacrifice to the statue of Nero. And the Christians, what are they doing? Well, they're not bowing. They're not sacrificing. And all of a sudden, these hyper fans of Rome and Philippi are starting to look over at the Christians and feeling angry at them, embarrassed by them. Here's the truth. No matter what time period you live in, no matter what age you live in, there will always be something about the gospel, a stance that a believer that we must take that will be viewed as odd, embarrassing, unacceptable, sometimes even worthy of course of violence. Look back at church history, look back and see all the different ways that it manifests itself. In some cultures, they were burning widows and Christians were standing against that. In Philippi, if you don't bow to the statue of Nero, there's always going to be something that causes the believer to stand out. The gospel collides with culture. Remember what Paul's saying, though. This isn't your home. Your home is rooted somewhere else. You need to walk in this world in a manner that is worthy of your citizenship in heaven. You've got to count the cost. He also makes another point. You know, we're asking, well, how is it attractive to be persecuted? Look at that line he says there. This will be assigned to them that they're going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. Now, I was processing that verse quite a bit in preparation for this sermon. I'm asking myself, well, what in the world is the sign if a, per- a Christian's persecuted? And to me, I've come to the conclusion that the sign is a powerful witness that is created when a Christian stands firm for the gospel, even under the threat of harm. I mean, think about it. They're standing firm. And someone will now think, she really believes this. 
She's really convinced of this. She's really tethering her life and everything on the reality that she has another world to live in, a heavenly home. Uh, we have so many examples in church history of people who were former persecutors who become believers because they've watched Christians stand under the testimony of the faith, being fearless in the way they uh, pursue the faith. But I think the most uh, striking or shocking statement in the letter is verse 29, when Paul says this, he says, suffering is a privilege. When you think of the word privilege, I think this is something I get to do, right? Like, I get to preach in the pulpit of Osterville Baptist Church. What a privilege. Honored to do it. Now Paul's saying something like, suffering equals privilege? Does that equation work out well in your brain? Doesn't it sound a little wonky to you too? How could he say something like this? Remember, we keep saying over and over and over again in this series, you are what you think. You are even what you think about suffering. And it's good. Paul's saying here, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me too. And he's a man who didn't say things like this from the safe confines of the ivory tower. No, he's writing to us while he's in chains. He's a man who had suffered for Christ repeatedly, experienced the hardship of the gospel. In fact, a biographer that I cited to you last week, John Pollock, cites an ancient document that may have preserved the traditional appearance of Paul. And listen how it describes him. He was moderate height, rather bald with a long nose and beetle brow. Sounds like a handsome dude if you ask me. And get this last part, bow-legged. Pollock suggests that this is a deformity, a deformity common among men who had been flogged severely. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 17, Paul says, I bear on my body the scars of our Lord. Here's a man who really believed that suffering equals privilege. Now, if you're a Christian, you have to ask yourself a deep question about suffering in this world. How am I supposed to think about suffering, hardship, tragedy, the things that we experience in this world, in this life, in any form? Uh, one author says that really, what we need to do with these things in this world is develop what is called a redemptive perspective. Now, what is that? Well, it turns out that whenever we go through a hard time, we normally create one list. So he says, normally when something hard happens, we start running a negative mental list of all of the consequences. And he says, that's fine and normal. It's true, those things happen to you they were hard. But he says finding a redemptive perspective is about creating a second list of the benefits of a given tragedy. And he says there's always benefits 
uh, psychologists who have studied how people respond to trauma say that the key to profiting from pain and flourishing after suffering is the story we tell ourselves about our pain. Remember, there's constantly an inner monologue that's going on in my mind, and I'm telling myself a story about my life. Now, the pessimist tells themselves about their pain and suffering, it's really bad, and it's never going to get better. That's their story. The optimist, on the other hand, says, it's not so bad, and things will get better from here. Now, here's what's powerful about the Christian story. See, we don't have to tell ourselves a story that may or may not be true and may or may not have a happy ending. Our story is really about attaching ourselves by faith to the grand story of God's redemptive plan in this world. We're celebrating Christmas after all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God became flesh. He entered into the hellscape of planet Earth, lived amongst us, lived the life we couldn't live, even sacrificially laid down his life on the cross so that you might become a child of God. David Murray says, really, as a Christian, the way to process your pain is by asking yourself three redemptive questions of your pain. The first question is, what good could come from this? The second question is, what can I learn about myself and about others? The third question is, how can I grow through this? I think that third question is so important. Because what happens in the midst of pain is sometimes, as Lillian Edmonds likes to say, we get stuck. We kind of swirl in the midst of the pain. We, we forget the reality that there is a better day ahead that we can grow beyond the pain. You know, it's said of someone who's not a Christian or a Christian that chain or pain can be highly transformative in a person's life. There's a psychologist, Martin Seligman, and he ran a study of 1,700 people people who had been through the, uh, I think it was the 15 worst forms of pain or trauma that a person could experience in the world, whether it was torture or assault or the loss of a child or divorce. And you know what they found that was so remarkable? For the people who had been through the trauma and who told themselves a better story in the midst of trauma, those who did that experienced greater levels of well-being post-trauma than if the trauma had never happened in their life. And here's what's even more remarkable. One traumatic event, greater levels of well-being. Two traumatic events, even greater levels of well-being. Three traumatic events, even greater levels of well-being. So what was this well-being that they described? Well, he would call it this spiritual compassion, self-confidence, life satisfaction, and greater intimacy in their relationships. If you've ever been through something really dark, really hard, and come out the other end, you never take people for granted again. You cherish them. 
And if that's true, if these outcomes are possible for non-Christians, think about what's possible for us who have all the spiritual blessings in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul writes about his experience with suffering in 2 Corinthians 6. He says this, we are ignored even though we are well known. We live close to death, but we are still alive. We have been beaten, but we have not been killed. Our hearts ache, but we, are al- we always have joy. I like how the ESV translates that one. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We are poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. Incredible. Here's what the Bible does. It doesn't discount your pain. It doesn't trivialize it. It doesn't minimize it. It doesn't discount it and say that never happened to you. No, it actually deeply empathizes with the real pain that happens in this real world. But the Bible says you can't get stuck. You can't become the victim. That God is greater than any pain or suffering or tragedy that a person could experience in this world. And so how do I find joy in the midst of that? Well, you have to tell yourself a better story, a true story, a redemptive story. What is Paul doing in this passage? He's giving us that redemptive story. Let me just summarize it for you again. You are a citizen of heaven. So even if you are going through pain right now, guess what? At some point, you get to jump on the airplane and go home. You are not alone. You were made for people. You are part of a people who have a greater purpose, a greater cause. Your suffering is a privilege. Why? Because some causes are worthy of everything, and the cause of Christ is worthy even of your life. Will you do something with me? Close your eyes for just a minute and really appropriate this message. Let me read verse 27 for you again. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. As you process that, do you sense your happy privilege? Are you living into your grand calling as a citizen of heaven? Let's pray. Lord, we are just grateful for this message that is found in Philippians. I love the reality that even as Paul writes, he writes as a co-laborer, a co-sufferer. He has been through pain himself. He's not foreign to it. And he is found as an apostle and a believer in Jesus Christ that the benefits of Christ far outweigh any negatives that he has experienced in this world. Lord, this message that was true back then is true today. And I pray for us as pastor of this church and as pastor living in this time period, I feel great concern for people. I know that people are struggling. I know that for some, and even in this room today, they're fighting for joy. They feel alone. 
Lord, your word speaks into that. It presents hope, joy, relationship. I pray, Lord, that this message would be received, that it would be appropriated, that the Spirit of God would move in this room this morning. In your name we pray.